We're reading through the New Testament this year. Uh, Our journey through the New Testament has just brought us through what might be one of the most glorious books in all of the Bible, certainly in the New Testament. One of the interesting things you find when you read commentaries is that a particular scholar devotes a significant amount of time to reading and studying a particular book, and many times at the beginning of a commentary on an individual book of the Bible, that commentator will say, I think this might be the most important book in all of the Bible. Obviously, all of the Bible is important. Obviously, all of the books can't be equally important in everyone's mind, but Ephesians is one of those books that a lot of people read and study, and they come away saying, this is a special book. This is a unique book. This is a powerful book. This book is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And I'll just put a few pictures of Ephesus up on the screen for you to see. This was a remarkable city in the ancient world. Today, you can visit the ruins. The picture on the right is sort of Main Street. That's where you would cruise or drag Main back in the old days in Ephesus. It's a beautiful view. Over on the top left, that was the library in Ephesus. They had a huge library. And then down on the bottom left is the amphitheater. This was a massive city. This was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Some 250,000 people lived in Ephesus. It was a cosmopolitan city. There were people from all over the ancient world who were living and doing business in Ephesus. One of the things that made Ephesus unique is that it was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. If you visit it today, the ruins look something like this. This is the temple of Artemis. But if you had been there in Paul's day, the building or the temple looked something like this. It was an absolutely magnificent structure. It was the center of idolatry of those who worshipped Artemis, a Greek or a Roman deity. So in Ephesus, what you had a lot of was people devoted to the manufacture and the sell and the promulgation of worshiping lots of different idols, but certainly Artemis. You had people who had invested their life and their fortune in magic, in sorcery, in witchcraft. And into that city, Paul brought the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 tells the story of Paul showing up. He starts preaching in Ephesus. He stays there for about two years. He starts a church. He's making disciples. He's putting people in positions of leadership because he knows at some point he's going to have to leave Ephesus. And he had to leave Ephesus basically because a riot broke out and Paul was at the center of that riot. He did circle back around, and in Acts chapter 20, you can read about Paul stopping to say goodbye to the church leaders of Ephesus, and it was a tearful goodbye. Paul loved these people, and at this point in his life, he knew he would never come back, and he would not see them again. He also knew that false teachers, he described them like ravenous wolves, would come in behind him into the church in Ephesus and spread false teaching, false teaching about gods and goddesses, Artemis deities, Roman deities, Greek deities, false teaching about the Old Testament law, the Judaizers, 
All these sorts of people would come in behind him. He knew that would happen. And he warned the church leaders that that would happen. And he wrote this letter to the church to try to encourage them and to try to strengthen them in the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, our passage this morning really boils down to one single verse, but that verse is part of a a paragraph or two, and so I just want to acknowledge something in the text of Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, 1, Paul starts off to say something, and he gets distracted. It's a Holy Spirit-inspired distraction. And he says what we're about to read in Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. And then he circles back to the same idea he never finished in Ephesians 3, 14. So if you look at verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, then most Bible translations have a line, they have a dash. And Paul goes on what is essentially a parenthetical comment And then he comes back to that in verse 14, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So in 3.1, he's getting ready to pray for this church. And as he's getting ready to pray, he has an idea. He wants to say something else. He inserts that comment before he circles back around to pray for his friends in Ephesus. Our focus is on one single verse in Ephesians chapter 3, and that verse is verse 10. And the big idea of that one verse is a really shocking truth. It's very, very simple, and it's this. God makes His wisdom, Paul describes it in this passage as His manifold wisdom, God makes His wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, and He does that through the church. Through local congregations like the church in Ephesus, like the church at Emmanuel in Odessa, God is making His wisdom known to a group of persons that Paul describes as the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. If you're reading out of the King James, the terminology is the principalities and the powers. Maybe you've heard people talk about the principalities and the powers before. A more modern translation, not better, not worse, just more modern, uses the phrase rulers and authorities, and they exist in the heavenly places. Now, the obvious question is, who are those people? Who are those persons? Who are the principalities and powers, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places? Paul talks about them here in Ephesians 3. He also talks about them earlier in Ephesians and Later in Ephesians, as well as Romans 8, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, he talks about this group of beings in a number of different places. And there's all sorts of ideas, explanations, theories about who they are. But if you give this an honest study, there's really not a lot of significant debate about who the rulers and the authorities are. Who are the rulers and authorities? They are personal, evil spiritual beings who oppose God and oppose His people. Personal, meaning 
We're not talking about structures of society. We're not talking about systems of thought. We're talking about personal beings. Each and every one of you is a personal being. You are a person, an individual. These are personal beings. They're evil. It's not as clear in this passage, but it's very clear in some of the other passages where Paul mentions them that they are the spiritual forces of evil who exist in the heavenly places. And that leads us to the third descriptor. They're spiritual beings. They're not persons like human beings with a body, but they are personal, evil, spiritual beings. When I say that, your mind is working and your wheels are turning and you say, that sounds like demons to me. And essentially, that's what we're talking about. Demonic beings. We're using Paul's phrase, rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, because when you study Paul's letters, he very rarely uses the word demon. Again, there's all sorts of theories for that. You can chase that down on your own. The term that Paul prefers is the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. And what we're going to see in Ephesians 3.10 is a strange thought for many of us, but it's this. Through the church, God is actively making His manifold wisdom known to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're going to read this passage, and then we're going to try to think through what this means. So follow along with me, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, <clears throat> we stop to thank you for the book of Ephesians. We thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to this church. We're thankful for Paul's ministry in this community, for his desire to see this church strengthened and built up and honoring to you. Father, we pray that 
these desires, these aims would be lived out at Emmanuel. Uh, Help us to wrap our minds around a, a strange truth that through us you are making your wisdom known to the demonic forces of evil in the heavenly places. Help us to think this through. Help us to understand what we've been drawn up into in this story of redemption, this story of salvation that has played out in our lives. Father, be honored in our time together. Be honored as we thank you through taking the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are a couple of weeks into a new school year. At the end of our service, we're going to recognize and pray for our teachers and our principals and our homeschool parents. We're going to have you come up to the front. We're going to pray over you. Thank God for you. Just a quick show of hands. Students, how many of you are thrilled to be back at school? A couple of hands. Very impressive. Teachers, thrilled to be back at school? Fewer hands. In the spirit of being back at school, I thought we would start this morning with a pop quiz. Okay? Don't be nervous. You don't have to answer out loud. We're not going to call you to the front. There will be no grading. I'm going to give you all the answers before we're done. But a quick pop quiz. I want you to think about this question. I want you to think about the question, why? Why did God act in history to save sinners. You understand he did not have to do that. God was not obligated or required to do anything to save anyone, but he did. Question is, why did he do that, and why subsequently did he gather those saved sinners into a local church? Why did God do these things? Maybe one answer that pops into your mind, this is like the ultimate theology answer, the ultimate Sunday school answer. You say, God did these things for His glory. That would be a right, true, biblical answer. You see that from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God does everything that He does that He might be glorified. And you even see it right here in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul begins to lay out what God has done to save sinners And three times, once with reference to God the Father, once with reference to God the Son, once with reference to the Holy Spirit, he says that he did this to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. God has saved sinners that he might receive glory. So that would be answer number one. If that was the first thought that popped into your mind, congratulations. A plus for you, check mark, gold star, smiley face, whatever you want to write on your notes. That's a good answer. Some of you maybe thought in your head or even jotted down on your paper, I think God did these things because He is a loving God. That's another good answer. That's a true answer. It's a Bible answer. God is loving, and we see that in the salvation of sinners. Let me just mention a few verses that highlight this. Psalm 103 says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. How many times does the Old Testament say that? Over and over and over again. The people who complain that the God of the Old Testament is grouchy and mean and just flies off the handle, they apparently ignore all of these reminders throughout the Old Testament. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. 
Moses tried to get this truth into the heart of God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses was wrestling with the question, why did God save the Hebrews of all the peoples he could have saved to belong to him? Why did he save them? Moses says, you know what? It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It is because the Lord loves you. You say, well, that's a circular argument. Why does God love us? The answer, because he loves you. Well, isn't it because we're the biggest nation? No. Isn't it because we're the smartest nation? No. Isn't it because we're the most powerful nation? No. The reason God loved those people is that He loved them. You see, the same truth in the New Testament. It's not just God with Old Testament Israel, but it's God towards believers in the New Testament. 1 John 1 says, this is love. It's not that we loved God, but it's that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God doesn't love us because we love Him first. We love God in response to Him loving us. So why did God save sinners? Why did He act in history to save people from their sins? Why did He gather those people into a church? Well, we could say, rightly, He did this for His own glory. We could say, rightly, that He did this because He is loving. Both true answers, both Bible answers. Paul adds one more answer to that question in Ephesians 3.10 when he says, through the church, the saved people of God, through the church, God is making His manifold wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's as if through churches, God is boasting and bragging to the demonic forces of evil about how great and kind and loving and powerful He is. If it seems inappropriate to you for God to boast and brag about Himself and what He can do, you need to go back to Genesis 1 and read all the way through the end of Revelation. Your view of God is far too low. When you and I boast and brag, when you and I try to rub things in the face of our enemies, it's sinful. And it's sinful because we are sinful and we are finite and we can really accomplish nothing of great significance at all. God is not sinful. He's holy. He's not finite. He's infinite. And He can accomplish absolutely anything that He wants to accomplish at any point in time with or without our permission. It doesn't matter. And He wants people to recognize His glory. He wants everyone to recognize His glory. He wants everyone to see His manifold wisdom on display. And what Paul says in this passage, it's a remarkable thought. Why did God save us and why did He gather us into a church? Ephesians 3.10, He did it that His manifold wisdom might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The question is, how does that happen? 
How does that happen? How does God make His wisdom known? Through us. I think we ought to stop and be honest and say a lot of times we do things that get in the way of what God is intending to do through us. And I would just ask you to stop and think about our church, other churches you've been a part of, other churches you know of, other churches people have told you about. There is no perfect church. Many times churches are not actively making God's wisdom known to anybody. Many times churches are marked by fighting and division, bickering, factions, cliques, gossip. Many times churches are known for their lack of standing, status, power, ability, influence. Sometimes churches are known for their lack of resources, people resources, human resources, financial resources. They just don't have what they need to carry out their mission. I mean, there's a lot of times you look at churches and you say, there's a lot of activity going on there, but none of it's focused on the main thing of glorifying God and making disciples. There's lots of things we can point our finger at and say churches aren't good at these things, but what Paul is saying here is that God's intent in saving a people and gathering them into a church, one of God's intentions is to make His manifold wisdom known to the demonic forces of evil in the spiritual places in the heavenly realms. How does that happen? I told you we we're going to focus on one verse from Ephesians, Ephesians 3.10. Now let me go back on my word. We're going to talk about the entirety of the book of Ephesians, the whole book. Because the way you answer this question in Ephesians 3.10 is to step back and to see what Paul is saying to this church in the entirety of this letter. So I want you to see six truths about how God makes His wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities. Truth number one. The triune God. Christians believe in the Trinity. The triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. The triune God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. This last week, me and Jake Graves and Jake Wood were having a conversation. We're talking about a book about worship. We're talking about worship songs. We're talking about the theology or the lack thereof in certain hymns or in certain modern worship songs. And we had the discussion that many Christians in the United States of America are not thoroughly Trinitarian. They have a truncated view of who God is which means they have a truncated view of what salvation is and how it works, which means they have a truncated view of worship, and they don't know what to do with the Father or the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we're pretty good with in the United States. We like Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. He was smart. He was kind. He was nice. He died on the cross for us. We sing about that. We celebrate that. That's wonderful. But then you open your Bible to a passage like Ephesians 1, and Paul starts to talk about God the Father being sovereign over the beginnings of our salvation, planning our salvation, choosing us, predestining us, and we step back from that and we say, you know, that makes me a little bit uneasy. Surely that can't mean what it seems to mean. Surely I played more of a role in this than God the Father instigating the whole process before, Paul says, the foundation of the world. 
So we don't know what to do with that. And then we come to the Holy Spirit, and we're Baptist. The last thing we want is for somebody to mistake us for a Catholic or a charismatic. I mean, that would be the end of the world. So we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. And we have such a low view of God, and we have such a high view of ourselves, and we have such a low view of our sinfulness that we tend to think salvation is like a switch on the wall. We can just walk by and flick it on or flick it off whenever we want to. When Paul says in Ephesians 2, no, you're spiritually dead. And God has to make you alive. He does that through the Holy Spirit. And then God has to hold on to you. The Holy Spirit, he says in Ephesians 1, is a seal and a guarantee of your salvation. That's why you have hope as a Christian. Not because you prayed a prayer, because the Holy Spirit of God is sealing you for the day of redemption. And instead, in the United States, we tend to just say, well, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's true. He did. He does. He died for you. But what Paul describes in Ephesians 1 is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father authoring our salvation. The Son accomplishing our salvation. And the Spirit applying our salvation. It's God's work. It's not our work. Don't take any credit for any of it. Because all you contribute and all I contribute is the sin that makes it necessary. God gets all the rest of the credit. That's why Paul lays out in Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus, not your good works. Not any good thing that you can contribute. It's all of grace, it's only through faith, and it's only in Jesus that you can receive that salvation. Why would God choose to save sinners in that way? Well, one of the reasons is so that His manifold wisdom, not mine and not yours, but that His manifold wisdom might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God gets the credit. God's wisdom is the explanation for why and how we are saved people. Here's a second truth. God saves Jew and Gentile by faith in Jesus and He unites Jews and Gentiles into one church. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 11 to 3, 6. Let me be honest with you. Paul could have saved a lot of time and a lot of ink if he would have just written to all these different churches and said, Jewish Christians, you need to start first Jewish Baptist church. And Gentile Christians, you need to start first Gentile Baptist Church, and you need to have two churches, and then you can work together, you can be in fellowship together, but really you're not, you just need to be in two separate churches, because look, you guys are never going to agree about anything. He never says that. He says to all of these churches, by faith you have been united to Jesus, and you're all united to Jesus, which means you're all united to each other which means we're not going to divide up and we're not going to draw lines in the constitution of our churches based on your race, based on your ethnicity, based on the color of your skin, based on your SAT scores, based on if you're a white-collar or a blue-collar worker, based on your age, your status. We're not going to divide up by that. 
we're going to be together as the people of God. He says that consistently. You understand that in the 21st century, increasingly, secular people in our world want to divide us up into groups. They want us divided up into groups based on race, based on socioeconomic status, based on how much school you have participated in, based on where you're from, based on things like gender, all sorts of stuff. Let's divide into groups and then let's keep all these groups separated and let's have one big power struggle to see which group can come out on top in the end. That's the stated aim of many postmodern people who follow critical theory. Divide into groups and stay away from each other. God has a different plan for His people. It's a better plan. And the plan is, you're all sinners, you have that in common. You're all saved by the work of the triune God. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And you all just need to be together in one church. When that happens, look, so often we think of just skin color. There's so many other things that can divide people. But when you have a a group of people, different ethnicities, different ages, different preferences about music, all sorts of things that make us different. And we say, we're going to be together because we found something more important than all the things that separate us. God's wisdom is made known to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places in a powerful way. Truth number three, the church walks worthy and grows to maturity as it follows God-gifted leaders. I want to trace this through quickly. Ephesians 4.1 is a hinge verse. Up to this point, Paul's been focused on doctrine. In Ephesians 4.1, he pivots and he says, Therefore, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In light of all of these doctrinal things that are true, this is how I want you to live your lives. And he talks about unity in these verses. He talks about the Spirit giving gifts Jesus giving gifts through the Spirit. And look what he says in verse 11. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God gave apostles and prophets. He says previously in this book that they are the foundation of the church. You only need one foundation. We don't have any more apostles. We don't have any more prophets. He gave them to be the foundation of the church. He also gave evangelists. He gave shepherds, which is the word for pastors. And he gave teachers. Why did he give these people to the church? That the saints might be equipped for the work of the ministry. And if you continue in chapter 4, that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into Him who is the head, into Christ. God has given leaders to the church, listen, not so that they can build their own platform and be popular, and not so that you can be entertained, and not so that your schedules can be filled with activities but that the church would be equipped to do the work of ministry. Why does the church need to do the work of the ministry? 
Because if we don't, as the church, do the work of the ministry, we will be like children tossed back and forth in the waves by every wind of doctrine, by every cunning scheme that comes along. In no way will that highlight the wisdom of God. But when the church is built on something solid, a rock, and the wind and the waves come and beat against the church, and the church stands strong because it's built up into the head, who is Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God is made known to his enemies. Number four, the church puts off the old self and puts on the new self as believers walk with the Lord. If you were here on Wednesday night in our adult Bible study, Corey preached on this section of verses, Ephesians 4, 17 to 521. I'll just point out a few verses quickly. Verse 17, Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Don't walk, don't live like non-Christian people live. That's what he's saying. Your life should be different than their life. Verse 22, 23, 24, Paul says, let me tell you what it's like. It's like taking off the old and putting on the new. It's like changing clothes. Take off the old and you put on the new. You remember last week, if you were here, I told you that I have a beloved yucca plant in my backyard and I mow him every week. I mowed him yesterday morning with all the rest of my grass in the alley and I did all the yard work. And I came in after mowing my yucca plant down in my yard, and I was standing, minding my own business in the kitchen, and one of my beloved daughters walked by, not even that close to me, and she said, you stink. You need to change clothes. You need to take a shower. You smell terrible. What she's saying is the same image Paul uses here when he says you take off the old and you put on the new. Don't walk like the Gentiles. That stinks. Why would you go back to that? Why would you just stay in that? Why would you not take the old off and put the new on? It doesn't make any sense. Put off, put on. If your idea of being a Christian talking to young people, I'm talking to young married people, I'm talking to middle-aged people, and I'm talking to older people. If your idea of being a Christian is that you're going to be just like non-Christian people in the way you think, what you listen to, what you watch, the way you live, the way you speak, but you're going to mix in a little bit of Jesus on a Sunday or a Wednesday... Are you going to really go above and beyond and do what the preacher says and read five whole chapters of the New Testament a week? But the rest of the time, I'm going to be just like the world. You've completely missed it. You missed it. Paul says, don't walk like that. It's not that we're trying to earn anything from God. We settled that debate back in Ephesians chapter 2. Grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. It's not your works. But you were saved to walk in good works that God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. So walk worthy. Put off the old and put on the new. When the church does that, the wisdom of God's on display. Number five, this is a big one. Christian marriage is a picture of all that God has done to save a people for His glory. This is Ephesians 5. I just want to say a few things about 
what Paul has to say about marriage. The way Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, let's be clear. God has designed marriage, and he has not asked anyone to redesign it. That is clear in Ephesians 5. That's not the world in which you live, but that is what the Bible says. God has a very specific design for it, and he has not asked anyone to redesign it. Secondly, that design is built on fixed categories of what a husband is and what a wife is, what a man is and what a woman is, what a male is and what a female is. Those are not fluid things that we can tinker with and play with. God determines these things. And his aim in verse 32 is really striking. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I just want you to understand what Paul's saying. We're not taking the whole passage apart. Paul says, Marriage refers to the church. If you've read the Bible, you might assume that it was the other way around. If you hadn't read Ephesians 5, you might say, you know what? The church, which comes later, is kind of like marriage. I mean, Genesis 2 is marriage. It's right there at the very beginning. You've got to get all the way through the law. You've got to get through the history books. You've got to get through the poetry books, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the four gospels. Then you come to the book of Acts way towards the back of the Bible and you read about the church. All of a sudden the church is there. So you may be tempted to think God first came up with marriage and then later he came up with the church. Paul says you've got it exactly backwards. Yes, you read about marriage in Genesis and the church doesn't show up till Acts, but this is what Paul's saying. In the beginning, before the foundation of the world, God's intention was to save sinners and to gather them into a church. That was primary in his mind. A secondary consideration was God creating something that would picture that, and what he created was marriage. The union of a woman and a man where two become one flesh. And he says, I'm going to make this thing, I'm going to introduce it at the beginning, but it's just a pointer to something greater. And that something greater is the church. It's a remarkable thought, and this is what it means. Christian marriages that line up with what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 5, how he details the, the role of a husband and a wife. Christian marriages are part of the way that God makes known His wisdom to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, to the rulers and the authorities. It's an amazing thought. You don't ever have to preach a sermon to make God's wisdom known in this way. You don't have to talk to demons and bind them and name them and control them and cast them out. You just have to be faithful to the biblical view of marriage. And in doing that, you are making God's wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It also means, to give full weight to this, that when people begin to tinker with what marriage is, they are tinkering with the gospel itself. Because marriage exists to point people to the truth about Jesus in the church. 
You cannot play with the one without playing with the other. One last truth. Number six, God equips His people to stand against the schemes of the rulers and the authorities. This is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Very briefly, Paul says you need to put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand. Stand. You're going to need to stand. Left to yourself, you can't stand. You're going to get blown over. You're going to get steamrolled. You're going to get annihilated. But if you want to stand, you need to put on the whole armor of God, the armor that God provides. You need to be completely dependent on Him. And in that dependence, you need to pray. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He says it four times in one verse, you better pray, you better pray, you better pray, you better pray. Why is it so important to pray? It's because when we pray, we are saying to God, we need you. We're dependent on you. We cannot do this on our own, but only you can do it through us. And when you say that, with the armor of God in place, in a posture of dependent prayer, the wisdom of God is made known to His enemies, the ones that we wrestle with, the schemes of the devil, verse 11. Not flesh and blood, verse 12, but the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare is not about casting out demons, exercising demons. It's not all the nonsense you see in Hollywood and horror films. It's about putting on the armor of God and depending on God through prayer. When you do that, you make God's wisdom known to His enemies. Why did God act in history to save a people and gather them into a church? Number one, for His glory, yes. Number two, because He's loving, absolutely. Number three, strange as it may be to think about, He wants to make His wisdom known to those who oppose Him in the spiritual realm. One of the things we do as a church, and we only do as a church, is we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, and I just want you to think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. We'll move through these very quickly. Number one, as a church, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the suffering of Jesus. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians in just a minute. It very clearly says, do this in remembrance of me. You and I are prone to forget things. We need to remember. We need to be reminded. And the Lord's Supper functions as a reminder. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Secondly, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are giving thanks for salvation. Giving thanks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord Jesus took the elements and He gave thanks. The earliest Christians picked up on this and they called the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, which literally means the thanksgiving. That's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We don't come boasting about our goodness. We just come to remember what Jesus has done and to give thanks for what Jesus has done. Thirdly, we come to proclaim the truth about Jesus. Paul says that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, that when you take the supper, you proclaim 
the truth about Jesus until He returns. So all those things are true. We're remembering. We're giving thanks. We're proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And fourthly, and not insignificantly, as the church, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are making God's wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's a remarkable story that believers have been caught up in. If you are a believer, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, and you've obeyed His command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you've never been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we would love to visit with you about that before you leave. What we're going to do right now is I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to pray, to think, to reflect on Ephesians 3.10, to reflect on the big truths from the book of Ephesians, to think about what it is we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to let you pray and prepare your heart, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.